I have three stories for you before we end today. Here's the first one. In 1984, I was a 17-year-old American in Europe for the first time. My mother had won a guided tour of Europe in a contest, but she didn't want to go. She knew that her son was interested in Paris and Ernest Hemingway, so she sent me. This is how I found myself one summer day as the only young person on a coach full of elderly American tourists. The bus was headed to Paris, but we stopped an hour outside the city to take a look at an old church. Well, I had no interest in old churches. I was anxious to get to Paris, to the art museums, to walk the same streets Hemingway walked. But I didn't want to sit on the bus waiting for the old people, so I went into the building behind them. Well, this was the cathedral at Chartres, and it was there on that day that I met God. Nothing in my life growing up in a small American town in the late 20th century prepared me for the glory of God made manifest in that medieval Gothic church. I was overwhelmed by the beauty. I knew somehow <clears throat> that God existed and that he wanted me. I too wanted to know the God that inspired men many centuries before to build such a glorious temple. Well, I did not walk out of the Chartres Cathedral as a Christian, but I did take the first steps on a journey that nine years later ended with my conversion. Now, there are no Chartres Cathedrals in the United States. I owe my Christian faith to the testimony that the builders of Chartres gave to me almost 40 years ago. That is to say, I owe my Christian faith to Europe. Another story. Four years ago, I was in Paris on a promotional tour for my book, The Benedict Option, which explores the lessons, the example of St. Benedict and the early Benedictine monks have to teach to us Christians today as we struggle to figure out how to live faithfully in a post-Christian civilization. A friend arranged for me to have coffee with a prominent French intellectual, an atheist Republican who is well known for his very public despair over what is happening to France, particularly France's difficulty in dealing with Islamic extremism. So the intellectual and I talked about how much we both admire the novelist Michel Welbeck, who is a great diagnostician of the West's sickness. Finally, I asked this intellectual where he found hope. Hope, he said, I don't have hope. I told him, I do have hope and that my hope is in Jesus Christ. I'm not optimistic about the short term, I told him, but I am hopeful. I explained that for a Christian, hope is not optimism. Hope lies in the conviction that even if things go very badly, even if we must suffer, and even if we must suffer unto death, our suffering has meaning if we are united to Christ and offer it to him. In a mysterious way, God can use that sacrifice, that suffering, to redeem the world, I explained. He listened to me politely, but then he said, well, that's fine for you Americans, but here in France, we don't believe in God. I didn't know what to say to him. His ancestors believed in God. His ancestors built the Chartres Cathedral. But he, like so many Frenchmen, have forgotten God. 
and he is witnessing the dying of a great civilization. Here's the last story. In the 1940s, when the Nazis occupied Poland, they carried out a plan to destroy Poland by destroying its cultural memory. Specifically, they tried to destroy the sense the Poles had of themselves as a particular nation, as a particular people, and they tried to destroy the religion, Catholic Christianity, that bound the Poles together and told them who they were and whose they were. A group of theater students joined the anti-Nazi resistance by writing and performing underground plays based on Polish patriotic and Catholic themes. The audiences gathered secretly in basements to see these performances. If the Gestapo had discovered them, they would have all been shot. The performers and the audiences knew that keeping cultural memory alive was worth risking their lives. It's a good thing that the Germans did not uncover this underground theater because one of the actors went on to become Pope John Paul II. So what's the point of these three stories? It is easy, I think, when you live in a place as aesthetically and historically rich as Europe to forget how beautiful and how packed with meaning the Christian landscape here is. I'm talking about the built landscape. I started my long pilgrimage to belief in Christ when I was struck by wonder, the kind of architectural wonder that we really don't have in America in a French cathedral. Europeans, I hope you will learn to see what is around you, the religious heritage that your ancestors have left you with new eyes. Wonder is still present. It's waiting to be rediscovered. Rebel against the tired, secularist argument that says, in Europe, we don't believe in God. Why conform to this lie? The past is over, the past is past, but the future is not determined. We can still rediscover the presence of God everywhere, filling all things. Second, the only way that Europe and the entire West will survive this civilizational crisis is by rediscovering and living out the Christian faith. The Enlightenment, which tried to establish a successor to Christianity on the basis of reason alone, that, that's dead. This fact accounts for the French professor's despair. Classical liberalism also might be on its deathbed. In the United States and Great Britain, elite institutions and social networks have succumbed to a successor ideology that we call wokeness, or in French, le wokisme. It is less a political ideology than it is a pseudo-religion based on the sacralization of formerly marginalized peoples. Wokeness is a deadly threat to our traditional liberties, but I believe it's so popular among young people because they have been raised without Christianity in a post-Christian culture, yet they have found nothing to fill the God-shaped hole in their hearts. The fact is we cannot form cohesive, healthy, successful societies without religion. This is something that even Michel Welbeck, an unbeliever, recognizes. And as another unbeliever, the English historian Tom Holland, has, demonstrates in his recent book, Dominion, nearly all of the things that are so distinct and distinctly good 
about Western civilization came to us from Christianity. Now, to be clear, we must never return to a form of Christianity that persecutes Jews and others who do not share the Christian faith. Anti-Semitism in particular is a demon that has mostly been cast out, thank God, but we must always, always guard against its return. But fear of it should not frighten us from embracing a healthy Christian democracy. The idea that public Christianity inevitably means bigotry is a slander that secular liberals use to marginalize believers, to intimidate us, and to dispossess European peoples of their past. Now, the third story I told, the one about St. John Paul II, is about the importance of cultural memory. All totalitarian ideologies seek to eliminate the shared memories of the peoples they wish to conquer. Those memories are what tell a particular people who they are. This is why the 2004 treaty establishing a constitution for the European Union explicitly refused to mention Christianity as part of Europe's heritage. The Eurocrats want to compel Europeans to forget their ancestral religion so these elites can create a new European man. Well, last summer, I had traveled to Romania to give a lecture about my book, Live Not By Lies, which had just been translated into Romanian. The book is based on the testimonies given by people who escaped to the West from the Soviet bloc and who now see arising in the West a threat like the one from which they escaped. They want to warn all of us that wokeness might sound like social justice, but it is, in fact, totalitarian. When I arrived in Bucharest, my publisher told me he only expected maybe 100 people at the lecture. Because of COVID, they had not been able to advertise widely, and they thought that people might be too intimidated by COVID to come. Well, we had the event, and over 500 people showed up. They came from all over Romania. I talked to one journalist who traveled 12 hours on the train to be there. Uh, over and over, they told my publisher the same thing that they came because this was the first time they had heard anybody, and certainly not an American, say that they should not be ashamed of their religion and their traditions, but rather they should embrace them and be proud of them, be proud of who they are, be proud of who they worship. When my publishers told me this, I asked naively, well, what about the conservative political parties in Romania? Well, they told me that the entire political class in that country is devoted to shoving religion and tradition aside so as to make Romanians, all Romanians, into better Eurocrats. The stunning response of the Romanian Christians, a response that even my Christian publishers in Bucharest did not anticipate, suggests to me that there are more Christians in Europe who are waiting for encouragement to claim their baptism without shame. I want to join my friend Ava Vlardingerbrook in encouraging you Christians here to live more boldly in the faith. We need more liturgies. We need more religious processions. We need more pilgrimages, more feasting within the church calendar. All of these things are methods of reviving cultural memory. We need the creative actions of families, of parishes, and private associations 
like the European Fraternity Initiative of Imre de Habsburg-Lorraine, which seeks to unite young Christians across Europe who share a common faith and a common bond, and to build networks of mutual assistance and solidarity. I firmly believe that these networks are going to be important as persecution grows, both in North America and here in Europe. We need initiatives like the Tipiloski, a group of cheerful Italian Catholic families living in a town called San Benedetto del Tronto on the Adriatic. They are fun-loving and traditionally faithful. They are magisterial Catholics, but they're not angry about it. And we need to revive practices like the anti-communist dissidents in Czechoslovakia did, holding seminars, meetings, and film screenings in private homes and apartments in which they would talk about art, about movies, about literature, and about culture. They did all of these things to remember who they were. And we have to do the same thing, too, in our time. Is there a role for politics in all this? Yes, but a limited one. We are not going to be able to vote ourselves out of this crisis. Let me say that again. We're not going to be able to vote ourselves out of this crisis. Though I have friends on this side, I am not sympathetic to the Catholic Integralist Project, which seeks to revive a model of governance that, broadly speaking, unites church with state. For one, I think it's completely unworkable at a time when all the churches, Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox, uh, are are struggling to regain authority. For another, I'm afraid it would corrupt not the state, but the church. As an Orthodox Christian myself, it pains me to point to the situation in which Patriarch Kirill of Moscow finds himself. He's not prophetic, but rather prostrate before Putin and the Russian state as they prosecute an unjust war. Um, I have appreciated over the years the way that he has advised the Russian state, and the Russian state has tried to defend the natural family and other things. But now in this war, we see the ultimate cost of this closeness, and uh, it grieves my heart as an Orthodox Christian. I think that Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban had it right when he said that a politician can give people things, but he can't give them meaning. The proper role for the state is to vigorously protect the liberty of churches, of families, and of religious institutions to do the work of religious and cultural revival. The Hungarians at this moment are being persecuted by Brussels because their government wants to protect the natural family and the rights of parents to control the sexual education of their children. The Hungarian government is holding the line right now, thank God, but if Hungarian families Hungarian churches, and all the Hungarian people don't do their part to educate and form their children in the right way, then the hard political work and all the slings and arrows that Fidesz is taking for the stance it has made, all of that will have been in vain. In all of this, cultural Christianity, it's not enough. True, I, I would rather live in a culturally Christian country than a culturally post-Christian one, as most of us do today. But mere cultural Christianity is not going to be enough to defend and restore Christian civilization. 
My parents' generation of conservatives included many cultural Christians, Christians like my mom and dad, who went to church on Easter and Christmas and thought everything would always be okay. Uh, we were always going to be Christian because we always had been Christian. Well, now the grandchildren of my parents' generation are leaving Christianity in large numbers, the largest exodus in American history, according to social science researchers. The forces of post-Christianity are so powerful that unless we are affirmatively Christian, we will lose. Or if we don't lose ourselves, we're going to lose our children. On that front, I cannot emphasize this strongly enough. We lay Christians cannot sit back and wait on bishops, priests, pastors, and other Christian leaders to tell us what to do. We can't wait for them to get out front and, and lead us. Too many of them are like Cardinal Reinhard Marx of Munich, who earlier this month celebrated a queer mass at an altar in Munich dedicated with a rainbow flag. Men like Cardinal Marx are lost. They are not the future. Let the dead bury their dead. We have a God to serve, a God of the living. We have churches to rebuild and a continent to reclaim for Jesus of Nazareth, a Jew that we Christians call the Prince of Peace. Now, I return to the claim made by my French professor friend, that here in Europe, we don't believe in God. That's certainly true for many and maybe even most Europeans, but I doubt that is as much a matter of the intellect as it is of the will. In Michel Welbeck's novel, Submission, the protagonist, Francois, travels to Rocamadour, a medieval French pilgrimage site seeking God. As he prays there, he begins to have a mystical experience. Is Francois on the verge of conversion? Maybe. But then he catches himself, and he concludes that he was feeling strange because of something he ate. He walks away, he goes back to Paris, and later experiences a very cynical conversion to Islam. Francois did not fail to return to the faith of his baptism because he doubted intellectually. He failed to return because he lacked the courage to follow his own intuitions, which told him that God was calling him. I don't judge Francois too harshly because I felt the same thing in the Chartres Cathedral in 1984. As I said, I did not walk out of that cathedral as a Christian because I was too afraid to change my life, to surrender to God. For eight years, I convinced myself that I would be a Christian if not for my intellectual objections. Then I finally realized that it wasn't about the intellect, but about my heart. I lacked courage. Then one day, I met an elderly man, a priest now dead, but who I believe really was a saint. As I talked to him, I realized the truth about God and about myself, that it was a matter of fear, not intellect. So I converted. I say to you today, people here who may be wavering in your faith, keep your eyes and your ears open and your heart willing. You never know what might happen to you this very day. My patron saint is Benedict of Nursia, who is also one of the patron saints of Europe. God sent him to Western Europe at a time of great suffering and peril. The Western Empire had just fallen and Europe was dominated by barbarians. Young Benedict retreated to a tiny cave in the side of a mountain in Subiaco, where he prayed and fasted 
For three years, asking God what to do with his life. When he emerged, Benedict wrote his famous rule for governing monastic life and started, started an order of monks. When he died in the year five, either 537 or 547, Benedict had founded a handful of monasteries near Rome. If that's all he had done, that still would have been quite an accomplishment, especially in incredibly hard times. But over the next few centuries, Benedictine monasticism spread throughout Western Europe and prepared the continent and its peoples for the rebirth of civilization. It all came from a seed planted in a hole in the side of a mountain in Subiaco. If we remember who the God of the Bible is and what he has done for his people Israel and for all of us who have called upon his name, then we have no reason to despair. Who knows? Maybe a new and very different St. Benedict is right here in this room today. Maybe he or she is receiving their calling right now. I have offered a Christian definition of hope, one that gives us the strength to endure suffering without despair because we can offer our suffering to God. Let me offer you another definition of hope. This one comes from the French novelist Balzac. He said once that hope is memory plus desire. Hope is memory plus desire. On this reasoning, if we Christians remember who we are and desire for these dry bones to live, these dry bones of our faith and life in the church to live, then God will come to our aid. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of Mary, Martha, Peter, and Paul will fill once again the hearts of his peoples and renew the nations of Europe. The choice belongs to all of us. Nobody is going to do this for us. If we want to see goodness, truth, and beauty triumph in this world, if, and if we want our children and our children's children to inherit abundant life, then on this very day, we must change our lives. Thank you very much.